And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today as we continue our journey in being uh, made more worthy instruments to uh, use by the Lord to help defend, share, explain the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And uh, got a great show in store for us. We're going to dive into the early church fathers with our good friend William Albrecht from PatristicPillars.com. And as you know, and you could probably tell by the name of his website, he's into uh, early church fathers, patristic writings. And specifically, we're going to focus today on the earliest of uh, the early church fathers. That is the apostolic fathers, those who may have had uh, rubbed elbows with the apostles themselves. They were taught by the apostles. Some of them were appointed as bishops by the apostles. And uh, so we're going to talk about them, who they are, what they taught, why they're important. And that really, I think, is you have to underline that because (laughs) for non-Catholics, whenever they hear about uh, early church fathers, to them... Their opinions, uh, what they wrote, really doesn't matter. It's just another opinion amongst many. No different than a pastor down the road or uh, you know, a, a person in their Bible study. But what makes the early church fathers so important is that they are eyewitnesses to the ancient faith. And in fact, some of the most important things they say in their writings aren't so much their explicit teaching as much as what they assume. You know, it's uh, they give witness to the faith that was just part and parcel of the earliest uh, generations of Christians. And therefore, they're much closer to the time of Christ, and they're in a much better position to illustrate exactly what was the Christian faith. And that's what's so important with defending the faith, is you want to show that continuity of our beliefs today, going back through history to uh, all the way back to Jesus and the Apostles. So, very important segment we're going to have on the other side of the break with William Albrecht. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to look at a finding the fallacy, look at an informal fallacy. Today's informal fallacy, by the way, it's called the Courtier's Reply. And we're going to meet an early church father as well. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to l- learn a lot about the early church. Today's early church father was Pope uh, St. Celestine I. Pope St. Celestine I. So, um, <laughs> there's so many popes throughout history. I'm sure this one, um, you may have heard of the name, but probably don't know very much about him. So, we're going to do a very brief look at his bio and also read a little bit uh, from his writings as well. So, we got lots of great stuff in store for us today. So, first of all, I want to welcome you all to the show, beginning with our live stream audience and also all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcasts around the world, either through our handy dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is Virgin Most Powerful Radio. 
org, And that is the place to go, folks. Uh, the app also, by the way, has a lot of great uh, free material. But just like the website, you can access this program. You can share it with people. Uh, you can go on Rumble. You can download it. And please do. You know, that's a great way to do evangelism in the comfort of your own home. You don't even have to go outside the home nowadays. You could just uh, email a friend, uh, tag a friend, put a post up. And uh, if you like this show, maybe there's somebody you know that is uh, investigating the early church. This would be a great show to st- to share with them. Just go to virtualmostpowerfulradio.org, and you'll see Hands-On Apologetics and all the other great shows, by the way, that Virgin Most Powerful produces. And bam, just click on it, and you have access to the show. And, and please share it. That's part of a mission. We're all called to evangelism. And, you know, we are in such a privileged age that you can do evangelism by just clicking a mouse. I mean, talk about minimal effort evangelism. So uh, take advantage of it, you know, if you have the means of doing it. And also, uh, we appreciate your prayers and also financial support as well. Um, let's see. Oh, if you uh, would like to get in contact with me, you certainly can through the Dojo mailbox. The official email address for this show is uh, questions at handsonapologetics.com. Again, questions at handsonapologetics.com. That's my own personal email address. The best way to get a hold of me goes directly to me. Um, I have a, a lot of, uh, what do you want to say, a lot of uh, pots on the burner, uh, uh, irons in the fire. <laughs> There's a bunch of metaphors. It's got a lot of stuff going. And uh, as a result, I'm all over the web. And some email addresses don't directly give me messages. So I sometimes get emails, and I feel real bad about that, where they, they don't use the official Dojo mailbox. They use a different one. And what happens is uh, eventually you'll make it to me, but uh, sometimes uh, since it's going through a circuitous route, it ends up in my junk file, and there's usually a delay. And I try not to, you know, I always check my junk file just in case. But to avoid all that, all you have to do is just do questions at handsonapologetics.com, and I will get it, unless, of course, it's spam. So don't spam me. <laughs> that uh, I don't even need to say that. But anyway... With that in mind, let's continue with our program and let's look at the Finding the Fallacy for today, which is called the Courtier's Fallacy. Not exactly uh, one of those household names like yesterday's fallacy, which is the Ad Nauseam Fallacy. Uh, Courtier's Reply, I don't think most people are familiar with it. The Courtier's Reply is a type of informal fallacy coined by the American biologist P.Z. Myers in which a respondent to criticism claims that the critics lack sufficient knowledge, credentials, or training uh, to in any sort of criticism whatsoever. In other words, if you don't have the credentials, if you don't have a sufficient knowledge of the the uh, field or the thing that's being spoken of, then you're not allowed to launch any criticism whatsoever because you're not credentialed enough. It may be considered an inverted form of the argument from authority, where a person without authority disagreeing with authority is presumed incorrect prima facie. In other words, uh, simply because you don't have letters after your name, then you are dismissed without even a hearing. 
Okay. And it may be considered to be a form of an ad hominem fallacy. And, of course, ad hominem fallacy is where the messenger is attacked instead of addressing the message. Um, Does this happen? Yes, it does, uh, certainly within academia. And uh, you would do the same thing with the quarters, quarters reply fallacy as you would with an ad hominem fallacy. And that is um, absorb and refocus, right? Uh, first, you grant, even hypothetically, okay, fine. Uh, let's say I am not credentialed, I not have sufficient knowledge, so on and so forth. And then you redirect. Nevertheless, what about my criticism? I mean, in a way, it really does backfire on a person if they try to use this fallacy because if they are so credentialed and so well studied in the topic, then certainly a criticism launched from a novice or somebody who doesn't know any better would be very easy to uh, dismantle and uh, answer, right? So by dismissing it out of hand, it is an implicit admission that perhaps the person who is the know-it-all doesn't really know it all, right? And I found that to be very effective. If you point out that, well, you know what, even if uh, all you said is true, nevertheless, you know, that should make it very easy for someone as knowledgeable as yourself to answer it. So why don't you answer it? When you put that challenge in front of them, they almost always go for it. And so, yeah, I have encountered this occasionally, and um, usually that works. Because if they then again refuse, then implicitly they're admitting that they just don't have the gusto to <laughs> dismantle uh, the critique. And therefore, in a way, maybe they're not as qualified as the person launching the criticism. Okay, so that's our finding the fallacy for today, the courtier's reply. Let's meet our early church father for today, who is St. Celestine I. Pope of Rome, he reigned from A.D. 422 to 432. Pope Celestine is of no small importance, says Jurgen's Faith Early Fathers, for his dealings with the Eastern Patriarchs, especially in regards to Nestorius and the Council of Ephesus, which met in 431 A.D., except for a fragment of a sermon that appears in the corpus of his letters, and specifically letter 10, his letters are his only surviving writings. His pontificate is dated from September of 422 to his death in July of 432. And so all we have is a, a body of letters, 27 in all, of which 16 are generally regarded as authentic. So of the 27 letters, only 16 are regarded as authentic. So actually we don't have an enormous amount of information from Pope St. Celestine. We do have his uh, letter to the legates at the Council of Ephesus on May 8th, 431, where it says, quote, We enjoin upon you the necessary task of guarding the authority of the apostolic see. And if the instructions handed, down, handed you uh, have to mention this, and if you have uh, to be present in the assembly, if it comes to a controversy... It is not yours to join the fight, but to judge of to be judge of their opinions. And that is Pope St. Celestine the first. All right, coming up next, William Albrecht. We're gonna be talking about the Apostolic Fathers. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And as you know, this show, we love to dive into the early church fathers, especially because they're important witnesses to the faith. And to help us do that, uh, we have our good friend, Master Apologist William Albrecht with us. William has written, a, actually co-written a couple of very important books in apologetics. One is Mary Among the Evangelists, and also this book right here, The Secret History of Transubstantiation, Pulling Back the Veil. He is has uh, done over 50 live and moderated debates, and he has a couple of fantastic uh, YouTube channels, William Albrecht, and he's also co-host with me on Apocrypha Apocalypse. Also, ah, man, finally, he has a fantastic uh, website, which has uh, all sorts of early church writings, his debates, and so on. It's called patristicpillars.com. And William Albrecht, welcome to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, my friend, my brother, it is a thrill. It's my thrill to be on. I uh, I love every time I come on because I really get to enter the dojo and talk about what I love talking about, really yeah. deep, meaty, theological topics. I'm thrilled to be here with you today, brother. Yeah, and we are as well because, uh, you know, we, we love diving in deep because, you know, it just gives us more, I, I don't want to say more ammo, but it gives us a larger database, you know, to, to yeah. use in order to help people who don't understand the faith or maybe they, they think Catholicism is a late arrival in church history. Yeah, without a doubt, Gary. And really thrilled to be able to talk about the early church fathers today. As you know, I've done a lot of work in the early fathers. Funny enough, you talked about um, uh, two books that I've uh, co-authored, uh, Mary Among the Evangelists being the first one. We're actually working on multiple books right now, one of them being a volume just completely dedicated to the perpetual virginity of Mary. And funny that you bring up the early fathers. Um, I was talking with uh, my dear friend, Father Coppice, maybe about an hour ago, and uh, he just finished translating uh, a brand new piece of text from early or an early figure by the name of Eusebius, where he does talk about Mary. So we're always talking about the early fathers, <laughs> working on new material for everybody. Just really, really thrilled to be here. And as you know, Gary, I'm shocked at one thing. Let me tell you what I'm shocked at. I've been coming on the show, I think, for a little bit over two years now, and I haven't done a show dedicated to the early fathers throughout the eras yet. And I said, what better time to do it than now? Because I got a few emails from people saying, you know what? We've been watching Hands-On Apologetics, been watching your channel, following Gary. We love the fact that Gary always brings up the early fathers. Uh, are y'all ever going to do a show just dedicated to the different uh, centuries and eras? I said, you know what? Let's get it done. I think it'll yeah. be fun and, and it'll be important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, and there's so many early. I mean, it, it really is uh, a topic that you can go on and on because there's so right. many early church fathers. And it's also like a treasure hunt. I know you experience mm -hmm. this, too, because you're always discovering new things in these writings. And, and in fact, there's lots of uh, early church father writings that uh, are newly discovered. And yeah. some of them haven't been translated into English, so it really is uh, kind of like a new frontier of research. It really is a lot of fun, Gary. Let me give the audience one example. There's a, um, an, a figure by the name of Theotechnos. In fact, if you Google him, you put Theotechnos, Google doesn't even know him. 
Google is going to auto-correct it and put Teotokos, Teotokos for marrying. You have to make sure you put Teotechnos. Now, some people may think, well, you know, that may be an obscure writer. He wasn't important. But I talked to the Reverend Dr. Daly, who is one of the top Mariologists, Christologists in the world. He's an expert translator. And I said, Father, you know, why is this guy in the important? Nobody heard of him before. I said, William, maybe you didn't hear about him. But he was a numerous list of early figures that recognized who he was. He was an important figure. And hey, one day we may find more works that he penned. So that is the incredible and fun thing about the early fathers, Gary. Number one, who are they? Well, today we're going to get to delve into the apostolic fathers. But the early church fathers are very important. And I think you bring it out very well as, as well in a number of books that you've authored, Gary. They play such an important role because they are a, as, as the great Thomas Aquinas would, would note, that chain, that golden chain that goes back to the beginning to our Lord and Savior. A number of these figures, these fathers, were taught and trained by the apostles. And then they had disciples that they taught and trained. And it went on and on in an, in an unbroken chain, which is why today, Gary, you know very well, because I hear you bring it up very often. What is the difference about our faith? We have that ancient pedigree that we can look back in early history and we can trace our faith to the very beginning. And I think pedigree is very important, Gary, because I have to be very honest. When I became Catholic, I was astonished. What was I astonished by? By the fact that this incredible, these incredible figures, not only men, incredible women throughout history as well, were incredible defenders of the deposit of faith. They were pillars, I like to call them patristic pillars, that defended, that went, a lot of them went to their deaths, defending the truth of the ancient Catholic faith. And Gary, they prove our Catholic faith because they teach things that are particularly Catholic, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that is their, their most important value is they're in a sense witnesses of uh, the faith. So it's not that they were super smart. Mm -hmm. Some were, some weren't. Uh, it's not that they were super holy. Some were, some weren't. But because they witnessed to us the faith that was taught to them and what they were teaching to others, I mean, that's gold when it comes to showing how ancient our beliefs are, you know, rooted in the apostles. It really is, Gary. And the one thing that I really stop and I think about is when we talk about the apostolic era, there are a number of figures whose names come up in the very Bible that everybody holds near and dear to their heart. One very important figure that, that comes to mind immediately is uh, St. Clement of Rome, St. Pope's, Pope St. Clement of Rome, very early figure. Now, when we talk about the apostolic fathers, Gary, we usually begin around maybe the late 90s and then go into the early or mid 100s before we get to a period that would be called the Antonicene fathers. Now, today we're dealing with particular figures, St. Clement of Rome, St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Polycarp, and if time permits, maybe one or two others. But why are they important? We don't, as you pointed out, we don't have a whole lot of writing from a lot of them. But what we do have is vitally important. The fact that we have one letter from Pope Clement of Rome is very important because in that one letter, his letter to the Corinthian church, we have an example of the Bishop of Rome 
writing to a church and making sure they, in essence, get their act together. And he's talking to them as the vicar of Christ. Any way you break that text down, by the way, an incredible um, article has been written by a near and dear friend to both of us. I, I would recommend people read uh, the, the incredible Dr. Fastigi points out how in Clement of Rome, you can see that papal primacy and the papal supremacy already right there because he is issuing orders for them to get their act together. Now, why is Clement of Rome important? If I'm correct, Gary, I believe he's listed as the fourth pope, and he is one of the very first successors of St. Peter, and he's considered an apostolic father. Every church, and when I talk about church, I mean those apostolic churches. When I talk about them, I mean the Catholic Church and all her branches, the Oriental Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox. We all venerate Pope St. Clement of Rome. He's a vitally important figure. Now, we have two letters, Gary, as you know, one from Clement of Rome, another one which is pseudonymous called to Clement or second Clement. Now, that one was written much later. That one was not written by Clement of Rome. And we know that because the early church fathers who were cataloging these amazing writings that came down to them, they're very no they, they notably note that he was not the author of that text. But here's another thing, Gary, I, I frequently get... I hear it come up. They'll say, all right, well, Gary, William, you know, you guys are listing all these people. Well, you know, why don't you toss in a Tertullian or an origin? Well, here's the incredible thing, Gary. The Catholic Church has known which fathers made the cut of being an early church father. And you know that because when you get to the incredible writing of St. Jerome himself, writing, I'm reminded of uh, his work on illustrious men and other writings of his. You've got fathers like Jerome and others throughout church history that will note, you know, these figures didn't make the cut. Tertullian left the fold of the ancient Catholic Church. He became a Montanist. St. Jerome does note that. So we have this pedigree throughout history of early writers noting which figures were venerated and looked upon as early church fathers. And if anybody didn't doubt it, Go read the writing of the great St. Athanasius. In his festal letters, he hearkens to the fathers that come before him. Augustine does so as well. So the early church fathers are really important. Another thing which is really important is we know we're told that Clement of Rome, Pope St. Clement of Rome, was ordained by Peter, which is magnificent, amazing. And as we go on throughout history, what are we going to notice? We're going to notice that a lot of these figures had contact with the apostles, were taught and trained by them. And Gary, as we enter, we're almost there, we're not there yet, but as we enter the incredible season of Lent and work towards the incredible celebration of the bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior, all of these early fathers as well, the apostolic fathers, taught the bodily resurrection of Christ. Another really, really important teaching that you can find incredible testimony of the historicity of the event in these figures. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, by the way, yeah, as Lent's coming up, I highly recommend that if you want some Lenten reading, read the Apostolic Fathers, especially Ignatius yep. of Antioch. I mean, uh, talk about yep. some really meaty spiritual uh, letters, but I, I don't want to <laughs> go ahead of ourselves. So Pope St. Clement um, wrote a uh, authentic letter to the church in yep. Corinth. 
And what was the reception of the letter? Uh, what was the letter about and what was its reception? So here is the interesting thing, Gary. I find it so so funny that a scholar's note, you open up the Bible and you read the letter right away as soon as you get into the letter uh, to the Corinthians from St. Paul. St. Paul is just really upset. You know, guys, get your act together. Um, you know, you got, I've visited you before, yet you continue living carnal lives. St. Paul even tells them, look, I can't even give you solid food. I'm going to have to feed you like infants, like babies, because you all continue to live divided. And the one true church should not be divided. Well, funny enough, Gary, we close the books of the Bible, then we go into the first century and the Corinthian church is back at it because Pope Clement is, is telling them to get their act together. Now, why, why, is the, why is it really important that these figures get their act together, Gary? It's because they're being martyred and killed daily. And these incredible saints want them to get their lives in order before Judgment Day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we are chatting about the Apostolic Fathers with Master Apologist William Albrecht. A lot more to come after this. Stay tuned. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with William Albrecht of PatristicPillars.com, uh, talking about a very important group of early church writers known as the Apostolic Fathers. And uh, so, William, uh, we were just talking about Pope St. Clement I, his letter to the Corinthians. And, man, uh, Corinth, what a mess. Not only did they get one, but two letters from St. Paul. And then here you have a very early writing by uh, one of their first popes, again, correcting problems in Corinth. Yeah, no doubt, Kieran. Really, the letter comes down to us in, 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 in a very good form to show us that incredible authority that Pope Clement had as Bishop of Rome. That's very, very important writing. Another figure you alluded to a little while ago was the incredible, the great St. Ignatius of Antioch. Indeed, a doctor the saint of the church, a very important figure, Gary. You know, we have a number of writings of his that have come down to us. We have seven of them. Now, for people that may think I remember them all off the top of my head, I don't. So I pulled it up. I pulled it up on, off New Advent, which has it listed here. Um, now, I want to be very clear. There are a number of other letters attributed to St. Ignatius, but we know these seven are authentically his. We know that because they're attested to by multiple fathers later on down in history, including St. Jerome. When Jerome does talk about St. Ignatius, he shows he is aware of these seven letters. And we have his letter to the Church of Ephesus, to the Magnesians, to the Tralians, to Rome, to Philadelphia, Smyrna, and to Polycarp. All of them very important. Now, who is St. Ignatius of Antioch? He's writing probably in the very early 100s. He, uh, his name was Theophorus, which means God-bearer. He was given that name, and if you look, if you look him up online, a lot of artwork you're going to pull up of St. Ignatius will be of him as an infant on the lap of our Lord and Savior. Now, why is that? There is a, um, a pious tradition 
attributed to the great Ignatius, that being that he actually heard our Lord and Savior uh, uh, preaching, and then he was able to, he was a child hearing him preach. Now, is that true or not? That, that comes a little bit later in history. What is true, though, is that he was taught and trained by the apostle, the apostle John, was a disciple of John, similar to the great St. Polycarp. That is true. That is verified. That is historically true. And Ignatius of Antioch, Gary, in my opinion, is one of the most important early church fathers we have. Number one, he testifies to the fact that that early church had a name. It was called the Catholic Church. He testifies to that in his letter to the Smyrnians. But there are a number of other things that he does testify to, Gary, that are really important. He talks about the Holy Eucharist being the body and blood of Christ. He has incredible Christology, teaches the divinity of Christ, teaches about our Holy Trinity, talks about the structure of the hierarchy of the church. And earlier, another thing that I, that I briefly talked about, but I want every Catholic, any whatever faith persuasion you're part of, to pay attention. Because in the Apostolic Fathers, he talk about the bodily resurrection of our Lord. And that is vitally important to our faith. They teach it was a historical event. That is really important. So here in Ignatius of Antioch, we have a lot of really meaty writings that have come down to us that we still have, and they're filled with magnificent information. Now, I brought up Eucharist, Divinity, Trinity, a number of other things. I'm sure there are probably a few others that are that I'm forgetting that you might remember, Gary. But how about we talk a little bit about Ignatius? Really important figure, don't you agree? Oh, yeah. He's extremely important, not only because of his close apostolic ties, but like you said, uh, <laughs> uh, he touches on all these teachings, and he's doing so on his way to a certain martyrdom. So, you know, what are the chances that, you know, on your way to death and, and you're going to face the Lord in judgment, that you would teach heresy or start changing doctrine or misleading people? You know, to me, that's a guarantee that uh, what he taught is is uh, has to be authentic. I mean, his salvation would really be on the line. And Gary, the, the manner in which he wrote, you're right. He knew death was imminent. But for him, that was the beginning of life. He would enter into the eternal, uh, eternal life with our Lord and Savior. And you're right about that. Why would you begin to invent things or begin to lie? You're on your way to death. He even says at one point he, uh, his desire is to become food for the wild beasts. Now, he realizes death is imminent. There's no escaping it. Why is that? Because he was professing his Catholic faith. He refused to renounce Christ. He refused to renounce his faith. Thus, remember, in the early eras, it was illegal to be a Christian. You would be killed. You would be martyred. Either you renounced the faith or you went to your imminent martyrdom. And a number of them, a lot of them did, Gary. As you know very well, the apostolic fathers martyred, killed for the faith. Uh, a number of the apostles as well. So their lives were in danger. Look, be very honest. It wasn't popular to be a follower of Christ. It was not the in thing. It was not the fad of the day. If you were going to follow something that was popular and that was the in thing, you would have hopped on the bandwagon of paganism because that would have been the hip, cool, the cool kid that 
that kid in the block was established already, and you didn't have to worry about losing your head by joining the ranks of paganism. But by becoming and remaining a Catholic, your life was on the line. You would likely be killed. And, of course, that is eventually what happened to the great St. Ignatius of Antioch. Well, it did become food for the wild lions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great points. Excellent points. So we have first Clement, also the the um, second Clement, but it's not an authentic writing of Clement, but still very early uh, homily. And then you have Ignatius of Antioch with these seven letters. And William, maybe you could talk a little bit about that uh, one letter to Polycarp. Why is yeah. that important? So it's really important on a number of uh, of realms, Gary. Number one, we have got, and this is the important thing that maybe not a lot of people will talk about, but we have today a group of liberal scholars that will begin to question, well, you know, did, did Polycarp even exist? Did any of the, did some of these figures exist? Well, number one, we have historical testimony to the existence of this important figure, Polycarp, in the letter, in Ignatius' letter to him. A number of other things are important there, Gary. I'm trying to remember um, now that I'm, I'm confusing that for another apostolic era writing, which would be the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is a different one. But mm -hmm. but in the letter of Ignatius to Polycarp, we have a number of really important things that he brings up. That being chief, the fact that he recognized Polycarp to be part of the fold. Now, here's the other thing that I'm reminded of, Gary. If you look at the writings of Irenaeus and other figures, they note how there were people claiming to be part of the original apostolic group, the band, the followers. In fact, there's a figure by the name of Florinus, if I'm correct, who were told, look, you claim to have been taught by, um, by Polycarp, I believe. But there is then they show that, you know what, Polycarp never taught this. Um, he was incorrect in that theology being put forth. Well, the fact that we have this testimony from Ignatius on the very fact that this figure, Polycarp, was part of the original, this band, these apostolic fathers, I think that really does lend a lot of incredible support to the letter of Polycarp that we have, the one extant letter that we'll talk about um, in just a bit. So I think that that's really important. But do, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I I agree. And again, you know, it's uh, it's not like these are just isolated individuals. This is all part of the same community. So you have all this inter, uh, testimony to one another. You know, Ignatius refers to Polycarp. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon talks about Polycarp. Um, uh, you know, other church fathers, they'll mention people that, you know, that we don't have any surviving writings of them. But still, these figures keep coming up. So it's all part of this well-recognized community within the early stages of the church. And I think that really is the, the important thing, Gary, is the fact that you have a a recognized early community. You have figures that were looked at, that were venerated. Look, they venerated the relics of, of, um, of Polycarp. You find that early on in the in the apostolic writings as well. So these these figures aren't figures that came up, uh, you know, later in history. We don't know much about them. No, we know enough about these figures to know they were venerated, they were honored, they were considered mag magnificently important in the early church. And I'm trying. I don't, right now when we go to break, I had my notes in Florinus, and I had a particular quote. I'll see if I can pull that up because that is really important. The fact that 
any time throughout early church history, if a heretical group or if heretics ever raised their hand and said, look, we're part of the true teachings of Christ. Well, then you had a number of early fathers that would stand up and say, no, we know you're not telling the truth because we knew either St. Irenaeus or St. Irenaeus who was taught and trained by Polycarp, Polycarp taught and trained by the Apostle John. There was that golden chain, as we read of in the early fathers, that chain that goes back to the head. There, You would be able to trace the lineage of these figures, and you can go right back to the very beginning, right back to Christ, which to me, Gary, is the kind of pedigree that you don't find in other faiths. Now, yeah. I want to give uh, my due respect to uh, other apostolic faiths, the Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, but I want to be very clear. It is only within Catholicism where you find the fullness of the faith, because even if they may be able, these other apostolic faiths say, well, you know what, we, you know, we can look at a Clement of Rome and have no issue with that writing. Well, the the seeds of, of papal primacy, of supremacy, are right there already to be found in Pope St. Clement of Rome. And these particular teachings, some of them are particularly Catholic, which is why we say, look, we love our Eastern brothers and sisters. But in order to really want to get to the heart of that true faith that Christ left us, we've got to join the fullness of the faith. And that is the one true holy Catholic and apostolic church. Amen. All right. So that is William Albrecht. As you tell, we could talking about the apostolic fathers, their importance. A lot more to come right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. And we have our good friend, Master Apologist William Albrecht with us, talking about the early church fathers. In fact, the earliest of the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers. And uh, yeah, William, great points on uh, on all measures. You know, uh, tracing back our lineage and uh, seeing these things, especially papal authority. You know, right there in a very early document, First Clement in the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, great stuff. Yeah, I I really think that Clement of Rome is a very important figure. I recommend everybody read the writings. You'll find. You'll find these apostolic authors, these apostolic writings to be very important. One thing that I was talking about, I was able to pull it up before the uh, before we returned, was about a figure by the name of Florinus. Now, Florinus is mentioned by St. Irenaeus, who, by the way, is a new, newly made doctor of the church. He's a saint of the church, but he is a doctor of the church now. Uh, Pope Francis announced that not long back, so... Awesome. He's an incredible early figure, incredible early church father. He was St. Irenaeus, by the way. We're not going to go into too in-depth today. We eventually will. But he was taught and trained by St. Polycarp. And that does bring up this incredible chain of transmission. Because in a fragment letter of his, he is arguing with the Florinus. And he says, these opinions, Florinus, who, by the way, was a Gnostic, that I may speak in mild terms, are not of sound doctrine, 
he tells him this is not what the church believes. These opinions are not consonant to the church and involve their votaries in the utmost impiety. These opinions, even the heretics beyond the church's pale, have never ventured to broach. These opinions, those priests who preceded us and who were conversant with the apostles, did not hand down to you. And then he says, for while I was a boy, I saw you in Lower Asia with Polycarp. There you have Ignatius talking about this figure that we're going to talk about right now, the incredible St. Polycarp. But right away, he tells him, these teachings, these hidden secret teachings that are not in line with the apostolic faith were not handed down to you by the church. Now, Gary, I've got to be very clear with you. How incredibly important is that? When you've got figures like Ignatius, St. Ignatius, Saint Pope St. Clement of Rome, St. Polycarp, and then later Irenaeus and others, where they're teaching things like the Eucharist, the Holy Eucharist becomes the body and blood of Christ, the divinity of Christ, um, the belief in the Holy Trinity, and many other things. And you can look at their writings, you can verify it, and any time a figure would pop up teaching something else, right away they would say, look, the church didn't hand that down to you. I'm reminded, Gary, even though I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself, St. Cyril of Alexandria. He became furious with Nestorius. Now, why? Well, Nestorius did not want to uh, grant the title to Holy Mary of Teotokos, meaning God-bearer problems there with Christology, he was mad not only at that, but at the denial of transubstantiation in Nestorius. So you have these incredible figures throughout church history who, when they begin to raise their voice, it's because these figures begin to teach things that were not handed down by the apostles. And Gary, I think that that's incredible because a lot of these figures, as you pointed out, Gary, you know, not all these saints were nice guys, you know, but they were holding to the true apostolic faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's something that the perspective of time gives us is um, that we can spot innovations by uh, that they don't match up with what was handed on earlier, right? It may not be that we can identify true doctrine as much as we can identify error. Right, because yeah. someone comes up and contradicts that which has already been taught, then we know that's where the innovation is, rather than uh, you know the the ancient, most ancient writings. What a real, really, really good point, Gary. Because and, and don't worry, audience, we're going to get to talking a little bit by, about Polycarp in a moment. But that is a really good point, Gary. Because I then hear from my evangelical brothers and sisters and friends. Uh, they, they will then say, well, look, Gary, well, look, William, you know, look at these traditions that Basil held to, or maybe a, a, a pious tradition that Irenaeus held to. Yeah, how do you know what is sacred tradition and what isn't? Well, here's the amazing thing. If you hear about a, a pious tradition held to by one of them, and then you don't hear it as being held to by the church universal, well, you know right away that it's not as sacred divine tradition handed down to the church because a number of these early fathers acting as their own personal theologians may have held to, well, you know what? It's better to pray 
three or four times a day. You know what? It's better to have this festival on this particular day. Those are not divine traditions handed down. Those are pious beliefs or even a lot of these uh, church fathers holding to disciplinary actions that they believed were very vitally important. So I think we need to make that important distinction. And when we do that, when we put that dividing line there, and then we compare that to the fact that these early fathers are teaching transubstantiation, the divinity of Christ, the belief in the Holy Trinity, and a number of other things, Gary, then we realize, okay, well, look, that sure does seem like that was handed down by the apostles because so many early fathers are teaching him in unity. One other teaching that I think of immediately is uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary, taught of from the very beginning. And then when we get to a time, to a period in church history, when it begins to get denied, it is by figures that also denied the deity of Christ. And immediately you have incredible figures such as St. Ambrose, St. Jerome, that stand up and say, look, and I'm reminded of the apostolic fathers, because what does Jerome say? Hey, I knew Ignatius of Antioch. I, no, 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 not I knew him. I knew about his writings. I knew about his teachings. I knew of the teachings of St. Polycarp. He says, he begins to say he has acquaintance with these writings. Why? It's important to point out, none of these figures taught what the heretics were putting forth, which is massively important. That even though at the time of Jerome, he may not have had personal knowledge with these figures, but by the fact that this deposit of faith was passed down in an unbroken line, he knew, hey, this is contrary to our apostolic faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, we got uh, ways to go still. We have first, uh, first and second Clement. We have uh, Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, Polycarp. Polycarp uh, has a letter to the Philippians. Gary, you are correct there. You have an incredible member. He does have, have a letter to the Philippians. People, don't confuse the martyrdom of Polycarp, which you can find in the Corpus of Apostolic Writings, for being authored by Polycarp. It was not. But it is a very early writing. We'll touch upon that probably in the following show. We won't have time today. But the incredible Polycarp, so we've got a really important early figure here, writing very likely either the late first century or the very early 100s, Gary. But what is so important about Polycarp is that he was taught and trained by the Apostle John. He shows the incredible knowledge he had that was handed down to him from St. John the Evangelist. And the amazing thing that we find in this one letter, Gary, is you'll have people say, well, look, wh why doesn't Polycarp, uh, you know, quote this, quote that? We only have one letter that has been handed down to us that we are aware of. Is it possible later on in history we'll find another? Probably doubtful. That is probably doubtful. But the important part is that we have a letter from this apostolic figure, who, by the way, was all, did also go to his martyrdom, died a martyr's death, who was taught and trained by John and Polycarp, as you know very well, Gary, would later go to teach and train the great St. Irenaeus, who was just made a doctor of the church. What does St. Irenaeus say? He tells his audience, I knew, I knew about the fact 
that Polycarp would put himself at the feet of the great Apostle John and learn from him. What are certain things that he would learn? Irenaeus, one thing that he does talk about, very relevant to the time that we're in, that we're leading towards Lent. One important thing that he does emphasize is that truth of the bodily resurrection of our Lord. And how is that important? Because you've got an eyewitness right there in St. John, and then you have the testimony being passed on to St. Polycarp of Smyrna, and then that being passed on to St. Irenaeus. What an incredible chain of transmission and very early on. Isn't that correct, Gary? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so William, we probably only have time for maybe one more. There is uh, Shepherd of Hermas, there is uh, Barnabas, and uh, sometimes uh, the letter Diognetus. Yeah, you know what? Before, how about we remain on on the topic of Polycarp for the time being, and in a following show we cover the others. So we'll talk okay. about the martyrdom of Polycarp. Now, why is the martyrdom of Polycarp important? Written very early on. In fact, if you look, um, pretty much any standard collection of apostolic writings, you're going to find the martyrdom of Polycarp in that collection. Now, why is that important? It catalogs and collects a record of the death of St. Polycarp. was not written by Polycarp. But one particularly important thing there that we find in that letter, number one, the very fact that early, very early on, even before this, we can argue from the Old Testament and beyond, um, is the veneration of relics. We can find that present in this writing, the martyrdom of Polycarp. What other particularly important thing do we find here? Now, Gary, I know as the show rounds up, let me be very clear. The important testimony in this writing and we'll go deeper into it in another show, is the fact that, like the great St. Ignatius of Antioch, when they were pressed, when they were put to the test and told they were going to be murdered if they didn't renounce their Catholic faith, they chose martyrdom, and they held to that one true holy Catholic and apostolic faith to the very end. Yeah, yeah, amen. And uh, William, hey... uh... You know, we have maybe a minute, and you do so much. Tell us a little bit about what's on the burner. I've got a debate coming up tomorrow on the perpetual virginity of Mary. I'll be debating with my dear friend, my dear brother, Sam Shamoon. I'll be debating on the gospel truth against Alpha and Omega's uh, Turretin fan and Dan Chapa, both from Alpha and Omega. I look forward to the debate. Pray for me and check out the Apocrypha Apocalypse. A lot of new material debuting over there. All right. Well, thank you, William, for coming on. I'm going to get a front row seat at that debate. Thanks for having me <laughs> on. Look forward to being back. All right. William Albrecht, ladies and gentlemen, PatristicPillars.com. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back tomorrow. Do this thing with Paul Hands on Apologetics. 